today on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. Before God saves you from sin, which is no big deal, He's got to save you from religion, which seems to be the more difficult of the tasks. Our sin separates us from God, but our religion and our self-righteousness keeps us from God. God has abundant mercy for sinners. It's your self-righteousness that keeps you from that mercy. Welcome back to Summit Life with Pastor J.D. Greer of the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Molly Vidovich. So when you've messed up big time and done something that you can't take back, how do you move forward? Today, we are discovering how King David responded when he was called out on his sin with Bathsheba, and we are learning the steps to true biblical repentance. We know you don't want to miss a single message here on the program, so if you're a little behind on any of this teaching in 2 Samuel, you can always catch up at jdgreer.com. But for now, grab your Bible and let's join Pastor JD as he continues our study with a message he titled, Repentance. I heard a story this week from a guy here in the area, a guy by the name of Danny, who uh, was a college student in the area, and um, he, his mother was coming to visit him. He was a little nervous because he and this girl named Allison had moved in together, uh, and he tried to explain to his mom, he's like, Mom, this is purely you know, platonic. This is what people do, do nowadays. It's just to save money. She lives in her room. I live in my room. It's just we happen to be you know, all opposite genders in the same house. It's not a big deal. It's just not like it was when you were a kid. Everybody's different. His mom was totally suspicious because she was like, I understand times are different, but things aren't that different. I mean, guys are still guys and girls are still girls. And this girl's really, really pretty. And you guys, you know, living in the same house. He's like, he just kept assuring her mom. It is purely platonic. I promise. Don't worry about it. So his mom comes over for dinner. And as the three of them are eating dinner, uh, his mom looks at, at Allison and says, you know, I really like your watch because, uh, you know, it's just really pretty. And I, I've been wanting one like that myself. Do you mind if I look at it? So Allison says, sure, takes off her watch, hands it to uh, Danny's mother, and, and uh, they go on with dinner. And um, a couple of days later, Allison comes back to Danny. She says, Danny, you know, I, I can't find my watch. Um, you know, I, obviously, I'm not, you know, saying that your mom stole it or anything, but, you know, the last time I saw it was when she had it, and I just wonder if maybe she dropped it in her purse, or maybe she just forgot to give it back to me or something. But do you mind? Could you ask her if maybe she knows where it is? So uh, Danny sends his, uh, an email to his mom, and uh, email reads basically like this. says, you know, dear mom, Obviously, I'm not saying that you stole the watch, but the fact remains that the watch is missing and you were the last person that either of us can remember having it. Uh, Sends that email to his mom. Well, uh, a couple of days later, he gets back an email from uh, his mom that says, Dear Danny, obviously, I'm not saying that you're sleeping with Allison, but the fact remains that had she been sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the watch on her pillow right where I left it. All right? So that's right. Totally made up, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but we all we all know we all know what it's like. I think uh, to be caught in the midst of some embarrassing sin. Anybody know what that's like? I mean, maybe not that same situation, but all of a sudden you feel exposed in that moment. Regardless of what it is, you feel a type of nakedness uh, because your sin suddenly has been broadcast to everyone. And I know that you've probably been through that, probably not in the same way, but at least in some kind of setup and uh, similar to that one. And uh, what you're going to see again this weekend is something we left off with last week, and that's basically this. This is what I want you to get. Everybody sins. Everybody sins. It's just a reality. We'll go over it again this weekend. Everybody sins. 
It's what you do after you sin that determines the difference between life and death. Everybody sins. It's what you do after you sin, after you were caught in your sin, that makes the difference between life and death. Here's the verse that we left off with last week. I told you we didn't have time for it. We were going to spend a whole week on it, okay? Uh, this is the verse we left off. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That is a promise on both sides of that. The one who covers his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That is a promise we are going to delve into deeply this weekend. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, 2 Samuel 12 is where we're going to begin. 2 Samuel 12, this is the story of David being exposed in the sin that we saw him go into last week, which was adultery with Bathsheba, and then the consequent murder of her husband and covering it all up. You're going to see that exposed, and you're going to see how he responds to that. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 1 of that chapter. Here we go. 2 Samuel 12, 1. We're about a year, by the way, after David's affair with Bathsheba. We know that because the child that came from their adulterous affair has just been born. And in those days, it took nine months for between when a couple had sex and when the baby was born. Okay, so that's how we know it's about a year. I, I went to seminary and learned that. Okay, 2 Samuel 12, 1. The prophet Nathan, you see him in the first verse. Remember Nathan? He was like David's pastor. He requests an audience with David, and he comes in, verse 1, and says, David, I heard something recently that really bothered me, and I thought you should know about it. Now, again, at this point, nobody knows. Nobody knows about David and Bathsheba's affair, except for David and Bathsheba, and maybe a couple of accomplices, but nobody else knows. So Nathan continues, verse 1, there were these two men in this certain city here in Israel. The one was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except this one little tiny lamb, which he had bought with his own money, and it grew up with him and with his children. It was like a little pet to them. He used to eat from their table and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, which is a little sketchy, I realize, but you get the point, okay? So Nathan continues, verse 4, this rich guy who had more sheep than he knew what to do with had some relatives from out of town stop in for a visit, but instead of preparing one of his own sheep for them to eat, he went and stole that one little lamb from this little poor family just because he could get away with it and they didn't have any power to stop him. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no compassion. Then Nathan looks back at David and in the most direct application point from a sermon ever said, you are that man. I always wonder how long the pause was between that line and the next one. Because talk about an awkward moment, right? You ever say, I feel like the preacher was talking right to me. Well, David was the only one in the room, okay? So it was obvious he was talking right to him. The conviction was inescapable. David's actions are inexcusable. David has condemned himself to death out of his own mouth. Nathan then says, verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David then said back to Nathan, I, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You, you shall not die. Verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned, you've despised God 
that child that was born to you shall die. Everybody sins. It's what you do when you're confronted with your sin that makes a difference between life and death. Y'all, it's what happens next that makes David a man after God's own heart. David is going to confess his sin and all of its ugliness and throw himself in the mercy of God. You see, that's what makes him different than Saul. David and Saul had both sinned, and quite badly, right? And it's not, by the way, like Saul's sin was any worse than David's. If anything, David's sin was a lot worse than Saul's. But when Saul was confronted, he rationalized his disobedience, and he refused to embrace his wrong. But David confessed his sin and all its ugliness and threw himself on the mercy of God. You see, when we are exposed in our sin, you know, somebody confronts you, a friend, maybe a boss, maybe uh, your, your spouse, your conscience reveals it, whatever. We almost always react in one of four different ways. You ought to jot these down. Number one, we hide it. And by that, I mean, we just deny it. We might, we might admit, you know, that, that we had, this was something we had trouble with in the past, but not anymore. Number two, we rationalize it. We, we explain why our sin's not really that bad. I mean, I'm not really hurting anybody. It's just a little thing. It's small. It's private. Or, or, or maybe this. Everybody else is doing it. I mean, you know how people are nowadays. It's not like it was back in the 50s. I mean, you know, you, you have any idea what college students are like? If you had any idea what the rest of my friends were like, you would not think what I was doing was that bad. Or how about this? I can't help it. My, my desires are just too strong. I was, I was born this way. We rationalize it. Number three, we blame shift. We blame shift. It's not really my fault. You have no idea what my situation is like. You have no idea what's been done to me. It's not really my fault. It's other people that have made me this way. It's my parents. We rationalize. We blame shift. The fourth option, we repent. We repent, which is what David did. We acknowledge the full extent of our sin, and we throw ourselves in the mercy of God. Thankfully, David recorded for us, his repentance, the motions of his repentance in a song. And this song gives us probably the clearest picture of what true gospel-centered repentance looks like. Listen to this. A man or woman after God's own heart is not somebody who never sins. A man or woman after God's own heart is somebody who knows how to repent. So I want to walk you deeply through this passage, this scripture, this psalm, Psalm 51. I told you a few weeks ago that many of you don't know how to repent. This psalm, Psalm 51, gives you the anatomy, the internal workings of a true gospel-centered repentance. Five essential elements of gospel-centered repentance. You're listening to Summit Life with Pastor J.D. Greer. We'll return to our teaching in just a moment. Our prayer is that as we study the ups and downs in the life of David, we would all learn to see Jesus as the ultimate king that we've been searching for. As we head into the holiday season, we celebrate that God has come to us as that King, the one who would save us all. And to remind us of this truth, we are offering you a 25-day Advent guide to help you prepare your heart for Christmas. It's called He Is Here. Contact us today so you can begin walking through it with your family on December 1st. We'll send it as our thanks for your gift to the ministry right now. So give us a call at 866-335-5220 or check it out at jdgreer.com. Now let's get back to our teaching here on Summit Life. Here's Pastor J.D. I want you to say bye-bye, 2 Samuel, and I want you to go all the way to Psalm 51 because that's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time. Psalm 51, verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant, overflowing mercy. Stop, all right? What is the sole basis of David's plea? The mercy of God. Mercy according to what? God's steadfast love. 
Write this down. Number one, gospel-centered repentance makes its sole hope the mercy of God. Gospel-centered repentance makes its sole hope the mercy of God. Notice what is missing from David's opening statement. What's missing is all the things I usually say when I'm confronted in my sin. David doesn't bring up any of his past accomplishments here, does he? God, uh, you know, on the whole, I've been a pretty awesome king. Remember that whole deal with Goliath? Yeah, that was me in case you forgot. I feel like I got a nice track record. I feel like I got some capital in the bank. I think you can probably let me off on this one. Doesn't say any of that. There's no rationalization where David tries to lessen the badness of his sin. God, do you have any idea how hard it is to be king? And God, you know my other marriages are not going too well anyway. For three straight weeks, every single night, every one of my wives has been complaining that they've all had headaches. I got needs, right? That's why I went for Bathsheba. You don't see any of that? There's no, there's no bargaining with God where David makes a bunch of promises about the future. David didn't do any of it. In fact, it's kind of audacious and dangerous, isn't it? He just makes his soul hope God's mercy. There is something instinctive in us that says that's not enough. You've got to show God why he should be merciful to you as opposed to merciful to other people. You've got to separate yourself from the pack. You've got to show God why he owes you mercy. So here is the question. Is God's mercy great enough that you can throw yourself entirely on it and nothing else? David says, my only hope is the mercy of God according to nothing about me according only to your steadfast love. There is nothing about myself that makes me more worthy of it than my neighbor. Lots of religions teach you, teach you that you need the mercy of God, but only the gospel teaches you that you throw yourself entirely on the mercy of God, plus nothing else. So again, is God's mercy great enough that you can make it the entire basis of your hope? I have good news for you. No one Whoever made the mercy of God their sole basis of their plea and their hope has ever been turned away. The life of Jesus shows you that, doesn't it? The mercy of God is the one thing that you seem to be able to take an unlimited risk on. Gentiles, prostitutes, adulterers, the unclean, the diseased, murderers, the thief on the cross, all of them found mercy abundant and overflowing from Jesus. The only ones who were turned away, and there were many people who were turned away from Jesus, but the only ones who were turned away are those, were those who still held on to some reason that God should be or that God was obligated to be merciful to them. You see, according to the Bible, being delivered from your sin is easy. It is being delivered from your self-justification that most people fail at. Before God can save you from your sin, he has to save you from all the reasons that you think he should save you from your sin. Before God saves you from sin, which is no big deal, he's got to save you from religion, which seems to be the more difficult of the tasks. Our sin separates us from God, but our religion and our self-righteousness keeps us from God. God has abundant mercy for sinners. It's your self-righteousness that keeps you from that mercy. Why do you think God will be gracious to you? Why? If I said, why will God be gracious to you? Does it have anything to do with you? If you think that it does, you will not access the mercy of God. But if you cast yourself entirely on the mercy of God, you will find that he abundantly pardons and there is no limit and no end to his mercy. That's good news. God save us from our sin, yes, that's the easy part. God save us from our religion, that's the hard part. 
Verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Number two, gospel-centered repentance owns that the sin we committed is deeply inherent in who we are. Gospel-centered repentance owns that the sin we committed is deeply inherent in who we are. You ever had somebody confront you about something? Again, maybe a boss or a friend, a spouse, a parent, whatever, and you felt yourself resisting what they were saying, even though you knew that what they were saying was true? You ever do that? And you go through one of those stages I described earlier, you start to blame shift. I promise everybody at work is on my case. You got no idea how much pressure I'm under. It's everybody else's fault. Or you ever do this? This is one of my favorite ones. You turn it around on them. Oh yeah, you want to confront me about my sin? Let's talk about your sin. Because the best way to avoid my sin is to talk about yours. You ever do that? Or here's one of my favorite strategies. You can tell where the conversation is going, so you just change the conversation. You just avoid it. You fake a cell phone call. You ever do that? I do that all the time. Yeah, oh yeah, hold on a minute. That's my wife. What David here does is completely the opposite of any of those. He says, I know my sin. It's right in front of my face. If you can't see it, there's something wrong with you because it's here. I don't hide any of it. In fact, verse five, David takes that about as far as it will go. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, you don't know the half of it. I was born like that. Sin, oh, it comes natural to me. This stuff runs in my family. I come by it honest. I don't even have to practice. I'm just good at it. That's the truth about all of us if we'd ever admit it. Nobody ever taught me how to be a lying, cheating, manipulative, selfish jerk. I'm just naturally good at it. That's my wife. It just comes natural to me. Autopilot, that's the way I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be. I even see it, by the way, in my own precious, ridiculously cute kids. They are cute, but they are depraved. I've never had to send a single one of them to sin camp. Never. They just pick it up natural. If your kids aren't any good at sin, let my kids come visit them for a while. They'll teach them how to, how, how to sin. They're good. I feel like the most common word that I use in my house is the word no. I mean, you ever think about that? Why is that my most common word? Wouldn't it be awesome if, you know, I got up at 5 a.m. and my five-year-old's sitting there having tidied up the living room, you know? with you know, her Bible on her lap and her journal out, saying, Dad, I just really want to figure out how I can be more surrendered to the Lord. That doesn't happen. I, I, I leave my kids for 10 minutes, and I'm like, who burned the backyard down? And they're like, you know, they all start pointing at each other, all, you know, blaming each other. I mean, I just think, wouldn't it be awesome as a parent if my natural word that I always said to my kids was yes, yes, Ali, yes, yes, yes. But that's not what I say. It's always no, 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 put that down, Right? And the word they say back to me most often is the word, no. I put my one-and-a-half-year-old down for a nap, and his body bows up in anger. He's one-and-a-half, and he's already saying, no, not your will, but mine. I don't want to go to sleep. I will not do this. My two-year-old takes a toy from her older sister and says what? You know, mine. She knows that's not true. But she's saying, I want this. I want what I want. All kids are born naturally as rebels. They're brought forth in iniquity and in sin that their mothers conceived them. Every kid is naturally a rebel against all authority, including God's. A lot of people question how original sin got there and how it works, but nobody really denies that it's there. You ever notice that? Ernest Becker, one of my favorite atheists, a Jewish agnostic, actually, um, lived 20th century. He's dead now, but he, he, he started out his career trying to explain that all the problems with men and women today are all sociological factors. They're environmental. It's just lack of education, lack of equality, and all that kind of stuff. The last book that he wrote, and the preface of it, it was really interesting because he came out and basically said, all my theories up to this point have been wrong. 
He says, quote, I'm now looking at humanity full in the face for the first time. In my previous works, I failed to see how truly vicious human behavior is. I've been caught up trying to sustain the enlightenment myth that mankind is basically good. It's just not true. All of us are naturally self-centered rebels. I realize that people have sinned against you. I know that. And I know that people have contributed to your sin, but you're never gonna get anywhere until you own it. You are not deprived. You are depraved. That's why you are like you are. And yes, other people have done things against you, but it's your heart that is essentially the problem. Yeah, no, 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 my problem is that I hung out with the wrong crowd. No, your problem is you are the wrong crowd, which is why you hung out with the wrong crowd. If you've been the right crowd, you would have found the right crowd, but you were the wrong crowd, which is why you were attracted to the wrong crowd, not the right one to begin with, right? So quit blaming everybody else and own it. You are brought forth with the very problems that have led you to the place you are right now. David says, my problem is not that I committed adultery in a weak moment. The problem is I am an adulterer. And I just did, and I acted out all the things that were true in my heart. Look at the next verse, verse four. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Question, is, is, that, is that true? Is that true? Take off your mindless Bible cap for a minute, Okay. Is that true against you and you only have I sinned? How about Bathsheba? I feel like he sinned against her. How about Uriah? I mean, one of my favorite thoughts is the fact that I just, I'm convinced that when David finally died and went up to heaven, that God had Uriah out front heaven waiting on him. And Uriah's like, yeah, we're about to go into the pearly gates where there's no violence, but we ain't in there yet. (laughs) And I got a few things I want to talk to you about, David. I feel like David sinned against Uriah. So what what does David mean against you and you only have I sinned? This is a little deep, but it's the heart of the whole whole matter, okay? So write this down. Number three, gospel-centered repentance is directed first toward God. Gospel-centered repentance is directed first toward God. You see, there are two very important reasons that David says against you and you only have I sinned. I give them to you as an A and a B. A, he realizes his sin began as a sin against God. His sin began as a sin against God. David is saying, why is it that I needed that feeling of power that came from sleeping with Bathsheba. Why did I need that? Why did I run to Bathsheba as a refuge? Why did I crave Bathsheba's beauty? Why did my soul have this incredible suction power directed at her? I needed her arms, he says, because I did not have yours, God. I needed her beauty. I craved it because I was not captivated by your beauty, God. All of our sin, you see, starts in a broken relationship with God. We're not satisfied with what God has given us or we don't trust God to take care of us. So we go around God outside of his boundaries to get what we want. Why is it that you get jealous? Isn't it because you look at somebody else that God has given to them what you wish he'd given to you? In that moment, what you were saying is, God, I don't trust what you gave to me and I am not satisfied with you and your plan. And that's where sin begins. A question for all of us. Are we satisfied with God or looking to something else to fill a void? Something to reflect here on Summit Life with pastor and author J.D. Greer. We are in a study of 2 Samuel called Search for a King. And if you'd like to hear the previous messages, you can find them free of charge at jdgreer.com. We have a new resource for our supporters that's very timely. It's called He Is Here, 25 Devotions for Advent. This new book is great for the whole family or the whole church, really, to work through the story of Scripture throughout the month of December. 
It's kid-friendly enough to be used around the dinner table for all ages, especially teenagers and older. I believe it will give you some new language to understand these old stories for yourself and for others, how every story ultimately points to the coming of Jesus. We'd like to get you a copy today, and it comes with our thanks when you donate to support this ministry. Ask for He Is Here when you give generously by calling 866-335-5220. That's 866-335-5220. Or if it's easier, you can give and request the book online at jdgreer.com. I'm Molly Vitovich. Thank you for joining us today. And be sure to listen next time when we learn more about Christ-centered repentance. That's Tuesday on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. Today's program was produced and sponsored by J.D. Greer Ministries.